Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded on July 9th, 2014 at WOMR, Provincetown Outermost Community Radio. Tonight's host is Mimi Gonzalez, and the theme for the evening is Bloodsuckers. Mosquitoes, we've all had our horrible experiences with mosquitoes. I mean, one time when I was a kid, I woke up in a suburb of Detroit, and mosquitoes had bit me around my eyes. My eyes were were swollen shut. I could not see through my eyes. My mother put ice cubes on it, and uh, it, uh, you know, by the end of the day, I could open my eyes just a little bit to watch cartoons. So I guess it was Mosquito because Leech and Flea and Tick were taken for some other shows. So uh, here we are with the Mosquito. And when you do a little research on the actual Mosquito, you find out, well, what's the, uh, does anybody have any idea that what the origin of the word Mosquito is? If you know Latinos, you'll know that there's always a diminutive version of your name. You know, Juan is Juanito, Oscar is Oscarito. So Mosquito is a, uh, it is Mosca, yes, to fly. And then a little tiny flying gnat, horrible thing, but they should have said killer or stinger, or you know. And the sad truth about mosquitoes is, is it's the female who does all the damage. She's the one who's biting us. She has two stingers, or proboscis, if you'd like to use that word. Um, and uh, one of, this is a surprise. It's one more annoying thing. Well, see, it, what's not surprising is why she does it. And it's not, the males don't sting you. They don't need blood for food. And she's not doing it for food. The male and female mosquito eat uh, nectar. But why she needs your blood is why that guy in the killing fields needed the blood of the cow for food. And it's the food for the eggs. She's feeding the eggs. So first she gives you a little sting. You don't even, she, she sends her little saliva. It's very subtle, her seduction to your skin, anesthetizes you, and then comes the blood. <laughs> then comes the real sting. Ow, when you have to, you know, provide for the next generation. So. Really, she is a fierce hunter, the most successful uh, hunter of the species, just the way the mother always is. You know, the female polar bear or tiger, it's always this super accurate female hunting for the babies. Well, what if you don't have babies? What if you're, what if you're a female that uh, likes to refer to yourself as a barren babe because he, does, he didn't have babies then? Do you still need the blood? Yeah, you have to eat somehow. And um, I'm going to kind of launch into, why am I saying that? I know. Um, I'm going to say this, uh, the, I'm going to try to tie this together for you. <laughs> With mosquito being Spanish and women. And um, the fact that I kind of fell into the, uh, the layer of the Spanish fly mythology that uh, my father, uh, who's from Cuba, kind of taught his children or taught, taught, uh, left his mark on many people, on many women, and um, many, many women. He was married 10 times. And um, the funny part about my father is what he did for a living. And so if you have your irony binoculars on, take them off, this will blind you. He was a psychiatrist. 
and he lived in Las Vegas. Uh, and I kind of felt like a bloodsucker when I went to live with him in Las Vegas. I was 28 years old, and it was time to leave the East Coast. I'd lived all over the country, and I hadn't lived yet on the West Coast, so I thought I would go and live with him. He was with wife number seven. And um, wife number seven, he was getting kind of smart at this point. Why pay alimony when you can make sure they have a bachelor's degree and they're nurses so they can pay for themselves when you're done, uh, when, you, when you divorce them. So she was working on being a uh, nurse, and I was the annoying sound in her ear. My, she did not want to share my dad. Uh, I think there's some biblical sta statement that says, you do not have two women under one roof. You know, unless it's the, you know, the mother and she's the boss of all the other women. And uh, she was the boss. And what happened was my father had a heart attack. And, well, he had the heart attack. Now, this is hysterical because he is a psychiatrist that um, was, you know, macho from Cuba. And um, a week after he had the heart attack, he finally was back in the house. And he told me that I was gonna to have to leave. I was gonna to have to move out of the house because I was not getting along as, with his wife. And I said, I really don't care about your wife. I came to have a relationship with you finally. And he said, you will care about this wife because she's the one I'm married to now. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I couldn't do it. And um, I had to leave. And I said, I'm, you know, I, I don't really wanna leave and I do wanna have this relationship. And he said, well, it's not working. And I had a heart attack, and you caused it. Now, this is a psychiatrist, and he told his daughter, his only daughter, of all the babies that he made in the world, seven babies, all boys, one me, that I caused the heart attack. So I felt like a real bloodsucker when I finally left his house. And um, I have to tell you, um, I did continue asking my father for something all of my life. and. By wife number 10, I finally got it when he was almost too old to enjoy it, but he did finally take me and one of my brothers to Cuba with his last wife. So there is some benefit in being annoying and persistent and getting what you need, and sometimes, you know, has to come with a sting. The end. All right. Our first storyteller for the evening is Neil Baker. Bloodsuckers. There are so many different stories that can come from bloodsucking, but I took it literally as mosquitoes. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure about mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are to me like spiders. They're not really harmful. I mean, it, we live in LA and don't think of it as such a wasteland, but um, in LA, um, it's not terribly humid, and so you don't have many mosquitoes. So I think it, it worsens the situation in that when you hear that sound, do you want to do it again? <laughs> Sounds like a kazoo. All right, anyway, when you hear that sound, I find it, I personally find it really disruptive. It makes me angry. I, 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 I don't know what to do. And generally, when you hear that sound, it's late at night. You're in your room. Um, we sleep with the doors and windows open 
but we do have screens. So theoretically, there shouldn't be any mosquitoes, but invariably they are. There are. And just as I have a tendency to, and I'm, I'm sorry to say this, if, there's any, if there are any Buddhists in the room, uh, if I'm sitting on the john or I'm getting dressed and a spider appears, invariably I will squash it. It is, it is I'm not pleased about that. I, I am, I, I'm really not pleased about it. I, I, I'm, I'm more of a laissez-faire kind of person, but I can't help myself. I'm, there's a fear. And, and uh, I don't want to go on too long because I only have five minutes. But at one point, I was taking a sleeping pill um, called Ambien. And the reason my doctor changed my prescription is because I would wake up from my Sunday and Saturday afternoon naps, and I would see spiders crawling along the ceiling. They weren't really there, but in my mind, they were there. And um, it's a byproduct. It's a side effect. Anyway, mosquitoes. So here's a very personal story about, about mosquitoes. Um, some months ago, my wife was visiting her sister in Georgia, who needed help. And uh, I was alone with the dog and the cat at the house. And one night in the middle of the night, I was almost asleep. And I heard that sound. And I'm just swatting away, and then it came back again. I couldn't go to sleep. So I turned on the light, determined that I would kill that mosquito. Um, I couldn't find it. There are lights on either side of the bed that we read with, and I assumed that the mosquito would be drawn. We also have, by the way, as you know, in LA, we have what are called, I'm told, uh, mosquito moths. Do you know what those are? They're, they're huge. They're, they're almost this big, and they, we, we, we don't kill them when they're in the house. Their job is to kill the mosquitoes, but they're called mosquito moths, and that's their task in life. They eat mosquitoes. Anyway, I'm, that's my wife who's laughing. Anyway, <laughs> so on this particular night, I have the, the, the cat on the bed, the dog is on the floor, and I'm now, I haven't been able to find this mosquito, but I haven't seen any spiders, so I'm relatively calm. And I, I'm just about to go to sleep, and this mosquito zooms in on me, and I smacked myself <laughs> in the face, in the nose, and my nose started to bleed. Oh. Now, nobody, I've never told this story. It is an absolutely true story. But to, to, to think about it, that I'm, I'm so irate and so angered by this mosquito, and that I'm swatting wildly, and I smack myself in the face, and now I'm drawing blood. That's my story. Thank you. Next on the mic, we have Tony Khan. Blood sucking. When I was about eight years old, I learned that if I was going to survive in this world, I would have to become a monster. And the source of this insight was uh, the movie theater, the local movie theater that I'd attend with my older brother, Jim. This was, it so happens, in Mexico, uh, but the movies were in English. They were always triple features, and they were always about monsters. There were three kinds of monster, I gathered. There was the Frankenstein, there was the werewolf, 
and there was the blood-sucking vampire Dracula. These guys all had incredible power. They clearly called all of the shots. The only thing that made them not the top bosses running the entire planet was the fact they didn't get along so well with each other. The vampire hated the werewolf, and, well, poor Frankenstein <laughs> wasn't smart enough, really, to be hateful or to effectively hate anybody else. I really felt sorry for him because he clearly looked like something that had been brought to the world by forces beyond his control. <laughs> he didn't know who he was, where he was going, what part really should lead. Um, and uh, it, usually things went badly for Frankenstein. And had, I had the feeling deep down inside he really wanted to be liked, and he just unfortunately didn't have the, the skills, the social skills. <laughs> now, I knew that I really, if I was going to grow up and survive in the world, I'd have to be one of these monsters. And I'd have to somehow go into training. I figured I'd not bother with Frankenstein because I felt too sorry for him. And I, deep down inside, wanted to be Dracula. But I thought that Dracula was above me. <laughs> well, he could fly. He could transform himself. He had a great accent. Beautiful makeup. And um, usually the films were named after him. It was Dracula does this, Dracula does that. So he, he, had, he had, you know, top billing. But I, I, I had a pretty fair estimate of my abilities and my potential as a monster. And I thought, oh, forget about it. I guess it's me and the werewolf. And there was something inherently appealing to me about the werewolf because he had a split personality. Basically, as much of the time as he could, especially when the full moon wasn't in the sky, he was a nice guy. Dogs liked him. Little children weren't afraid to play near him. I think he even had the beginning of a love life of some kind. And uh, then it would all go to hell as soon as the full moon would rise, and he would begin to go through this process of transformation. He hated that it was happening to him, but he had no choice in the matter. And this being a 1938 or 1940 movie, the special effects were a little bit on, on the light side, but not for a seven-year-old. From, through a seven-year-old's eyes, this was a powerful transformation. It, the hair would grow on his uh, nail-lengthening fingers. The hair would go up to his chest. And then he'd stay in a kind of fixed close-up rictus <laughs> while a series of gels, I think, would go across his face. Fangs would begin to come out. You know, more growth, um, and then he'd finally go berserk because he would be totally, at that point, the werewolf, and he'd go off and he'd eat somebody. <laughs> okay, he had power, and I figured, this is it. I guess I'm going to have to be um, a werewolf, but how in God's name am I going to do it? They, there's no, these movies were not instruction manuals. <laughs> and I really didn't think, like most young kids who harbor a very scary secret, I didn't think I could tell my parents that I, I needed some help attaining my, my heart's desire. <laughs> also, I felt that if I did go to anybody who might be able to understand me, but he was the most forbidding person in my life, it was my father, I suspected that he was, in fact, Dracula. He was born in Hungary. He came from the Transylvanian mountains. 
He wore a beard, and he was a wanted criminal in the United States. He was a communist, and the reason we were in Mexico was that he was fleeing from the FBI. And I had a vague sense at age seven that he was trouble. Uh, but he also kept things very close to the chest, <laughs> like this, you know. <laughs> I know this doesn't read very well on the radio, but he was, he'd cover his chest. He had very strange body language, and I thought, well, he's so far above me in every way. I know Dracula's out, but I would tribute, I would do a little tribute to him every single night. I would take my slippers, and this is how ritualistic you get to be as a, as a kid who can't talk to anybody about what's going on. I would put my slippers in the form of a cross. And in case anybody asked me, I could say, it's not a cross, it's a T, a capital T. But to me, it was a cross. I was Jewish, so I, you know, but I recognized the power of Mexican Catholicism, and I thought, you know, this, <laughs> this just might work. And I put little diamonds in the inside of the shoe and think, I'd point them in the direction of my father's bedroom, and I'd say, I wish I could be like you, Dad. Well, I was about eight and a half years old, and things were not going terribly well for me. I was even more of an outcast, because after all, even though I could speak Spanish, I was a gringo. And any time I would walk down the streets of Mexico, I'd be made fun of uh, for being white, for uh, being fat, and for uh, basically uh, not belonging. And uh, there was one particular store that I would go past every single day where I could count on a lot of dirty looks from the inside. It was a barber shop. And I felt that the least I could do was to try to stand up to the abuse. I knew at least, you know, when, uh, you know when abuse is coming, it's a lot easier to take than the kind that grabs you from, from behind by surprise. So I would stand in front of this mirror, uh, this window rather, cheap barber shop, and I'd look at the people inside, and they'd look back at me. And there would be a solid, uninterrupted transmission of international hate back and forth between the daggers. It wasn't just staring daggers. They were staring machetes at me. And then one day, in the middle of the afternoon, while I was going through this exercise of self-abuse, I noticed that I had a reflection on the glass of the barbershop. It was a cheap barbershop. Everything in Mexico in those days was very poor. It was made out of the most rudimentary materials. And I think that this mirror or this window was made out of some cheap kind of glass or mica or something like that. In any event, what happened was that I wasn't seeing just one reflection. I was seeing three overlapping reflections of my face. And I realized that this was identical to the beginning of the transformation of the werewolf. And I realized at that moment, I've made it. And I stared back at them and I went. <laughs> and it was just like it was happening in the film. And I'm much better now, <laughs> I think. Coming up to the stage next is Bob Crisso. This is a story I wish I didn't have to tell. But I can remember it as clearly as if it was yesterday. In thinking about it earlier today, I was unable 
to find any humor in it at all. Let's pick it up when I was looking out of my window, trying not to be seen, while I surveyed the blood-sucking crowd that had gathered in front of my house. Some of them were carrying sticks. Some of them were carrying clubs. And some of them were carrying machetes. Two men started to roll a 50-gallon blue, rusty um, tin of kerosene towards my house and placed it underneath in the center of my house. Laura, one of the guests at my house that day, panicked. Bob, they're going to kill us. They're going to burn the house down. Jim, another guest that day, was silent, frozen in fear. I was a 22-year-old, naive, small-town Peace Corps volunteer in Nigeria in 1967. And I was teaching at a remote, in, uh, at a school in a remote village called Ishiagu in the eastern part of Nigeria. Three months earlier, the eastern region had seceded and declared itself the Republic of Biafra. Thus started the Biafran War. Thousands had already been killed, and living in such a remote village, I was unaware of how much the war had escalated and uh, how badly the situation had deteriorated uh, not far from my front door. Lois, I said, put on your sneakers. We may have to make a run for it. It's our only chance. I remember seeing the headlines of my local newspaper, the Staten Island Advance. Peace Corps volunteer killed in Nigeria. So this is how I will die, I thought. A light rain started to fall. Ngozi, one of the elders of my village, stood up on a tree stump and addressed the crowd. Come to your senses, he said. This man has been living with us for over 16 months. We have eaten Gary with him. We have broken cola nuts with him. We have shared palm wine with him. He has been to the weddings of our children. Come to your senses. Do not let your fear get control of you. The rain began to get heavier 
and the crowd began to thin. thin. Was it Ngozi's speech, or was it the rain? Later that evening, three of my colleagues from the school that I taught at came to my house, their faces full of empathy and their eyelids lowered with shame. Please try to forgive them, they said. Uh, many of them are refugees from the war zone. They are panicked and paranoid, and they fear that any white man is a spy or a mercenary. They left that night, and Laura, Jim, and I stayed awake all night, hypervigilant, overreacting to every sound we heard, and fearful of leaving the house. A small crowd still lingered outside the house, the kerosene drum remained under the center of it. 36 hours later, two jeeps filled with Biafran soldiers in crisp new green uniforms came and rescued us, brought us to the coast where a ship was awaiting to evacuate us. Thanks. The next story will be told by Gail Strickland. Because there are no stakes involved in this story. Um, the second film that I was cast to do, I got the job by doing a striptease in the office of the director. In the film, I was the character was required to be in her underwear. And the scene lasted, I don't know, well, 15, 10 or 15 minutes at least. So they had warned me when I came back for this audition that I would have to prove that I was not going to be an embarrassment if I was disrobed. I suppose that was the justification for bringing a young actress in and then telling her they needed to see her virtually naked. But I turned it into a striptease. I brought a little cassette recorder, and I literally ducked down behind the sofa and came out and stripped for the producers and for the director, and I got the job. This is by way of introducing how much it meant to me to have this job. I was willing to embarrass myself to that degree. I was not gonna make a lot of money. It was just my f second film, and Paul Newman was the star of the movie. So the bonuses were high and worthy, and it was very exciting and wonderful to be a part of this. Now, the movie took place down in Louisiana, and uh, the, the um, wardrobe person 
whose name I will share, Norma Brown, born in 1912 and died in 1993. <laughs> Poor Norma. Um, she was having difficulty wardrobing me and drugged me around to a lot of different places and she never was happy with any of the things they put on me and this went on and on. And now it was time to go on location for this movie and I did not have the dress, the dress that the character needed for most of the movie. The underwear they had, they found that right away at a place called La Perla. I don't know if it still exists in Beverly Hills. That bra and pants cost more than I was making in the movie. But they didn't have the dress. So they went on location. I was still a week out before I had to go down there. And to help Norma out, I started looking for this dress on my own and found something I thought would probably work in a shop in Beverly Hills. So I went in and spoke, I spoke to Norma long distance. She said, oh, that's really wonderful, darling. Thank you. Bring it. Oh, that's so kind and generous of you. I still haven't found the dress. So it's wonderful that you would do this for me. And I said, sure. How was I to pay for this dress? Well, I didn't, I wrote a check. I didn't have, I didn't, I don't even think there were, surely there were credit cards. I'm not that old. Were there credit cards? I don't know. But I didn't have credit. And uh, so I had to write a check. And I wrote a check for $1,700. But a dress. And the deal was that if the dress didn't work out, that I could send the dress back, but I, own, I had to have the dress back within, I think it was 10 days, six days, 10 days, whatever it was. Seemed long enough. I'm just going to Louisiana. I'm not going to Nigeria. I'm just going to Louisiana. I thought, sure, okay. So I gave them the check, and it represented more than actually I had in my checking account. So they were keeping the check for me. They said they would do that. And I go on location, and I start the job, and it's so fun, and it's wonderful, and I present the dress to Norma, and she can't make up her mind. You know, I, uh, it's good. It's maybe not. I put on the dress, I show the dress to the director. The director says, works for me. I, I think that's fine. Went to the producers, Larry Terman, David Foster, naming names. They said, oh, it's all right. I think that dress would be all right. Norma just couldn't commit. Days are now, calendar is flipping, and the days are passing, and I'm beginning to get incredibly anxious about this check for $1,700. The scene is coming up, and we're going to shoot, and lo and behold, Norma comes up with another dress. And my dress is not going to be the dress. So I say to Norma, okay, Norma, we got to get this dress back to Beverly Hills. <laughs> I wrote a check for money I don't have. And we need to return it within, oh, my gosh, we have 48 hours to get this dress back. Or they said, you, we will cash the check, and that will be that, and you will own this dress. 
Oh, we'll deal with it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Okay, so I turned that job over to Norma and all the thousands of people that worked for her. I had not one. <laughs> so I do the scene and the dress and whatever. And there's a hurricane in Louisiana, a real one, not like the one we had the other day, with the wind and the rain and the rain and the wind. And that dress didn't get back to Beverly Hills in 48 hours. And I paid for this dress. So I went to the producers and assuming, of course, they would take responsibility, Larry Terman and David Foster, and they said, we, we can't do that. We, you bought this dress. And then I relayed the whole calendar of events that led up to that. And they said, no, 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 we can't. That's not, you should never have done it. You should never have done it. I shouldn't have. I own the dress. I have the dress. I had to borrow money to pay for the dress that didn't get worn in the movie of the job that paid me less than the cost of the dress. Those motherfucking bloodsuckers. <laughs> Next up, we have Renee McKay. I, uh, I came up here tonight not knowing the theme. I actually went to the Wellfleet Preservation Hall thinking it was there, and they said, no, it's here, and they said, it's bloodsuckers, and so I drove here. I got here in time, but I had to think, well, what would I say if I had to tell a story? And I thought of my friend Rita, who I um, worked with. Um, I lived on Nantucket um, for a long time, and back in 2005, we worked together gardening. And so the story I thought of was her story. And so um, she was living in Ecuador, and was surfing and uh, she met some other surfers and they had told her tales of Nantucket and how wonderful it was and so she said, oh, I'm gonna go there. So she goes to Nantucket and um, we're working together gardening and so we're spending every day together and she's got these um, like very itchy red spots all over her body, on her belly, on her arms, um, her forearms and we're dirty, we're like working in the soil and you know, try not to get exposed to poison ivy and other, and ticks as well. And so, um, but she was going nuts. They were driving her nuts. She would put all kinds of lotions on them. She'd put like a nail polish remover. She could put anything she could find on it. Um, they wouldn't go away. She went to an infectious um, disease specialist in New York where she was from. They had no idea what was wrong with her. No doctors here could ever figure out what was wrong with her. And then um, come August, She's gonna go to Costa Rica to go on another surf trip with her friend who is German and it was a way of her keeping her visa by leaving the country and coming back. And uh, so when she was down there, she went to a local doctor and told her, they told them this, she told them the symptoms. They said, oh, you have river blindness. And so um, this is why I had my technology, because I had to look it up. Because <laughs> it was 2005, it was nine years ago. So it's a, the bite of a black fly that's been infected. And so she was living um, on a river um, in Ecuador and um, for a couple months. And so that's where she got infected. And so this is what I thought of her bloodsucker, was this nasty infection that she had. Um, and just recently reading it, um, you do go blind. You can, um, in worst case scenarios. And uh, another part of this 
the things about it that I thought was kind of humorous in hindsight was we were working together at this one house and she started to feel really, something was, she felt something with her eyes that it was, and this is after she came back from Costa Rica and knew what she had. Um, and so we rushed her, we like left the job site and went to the ER because we were really worried that she was gonna get, she was gonna go blind. Um, she was okay, she, she didn't. But um, yeah, that's, I guess she's fine. She got the medicine, um, but it was just for months she was agonizing over this and no one here could figure it out until she went to a small town doctor in Costa Rica who knew exactly what she had. So yeah, and so yeah, I thought of another tick story um, related from my time on Nantucket where uh, I had a really high fever and I was really miserable and uh, I was dating this guy and I thought, you know, I, I was living out in Madiket in this far end, western part of the island, and uh, I went to town. It was 4th of July weekend. The town was crazy, full of people, and I was just feeling horrible, and so I went and got a thermometer, and I took my temperature, and it was like 104, and I told my boyfriend. He was like, you're crazy. You're, you can't have the temperature that high, and, and so um, I was like, look, it's, you know, it's this high, and, and so I went back home, and I was miserable and for days, and you know, I did go to the doctors and they did end up saying I had Lyme's disease from a tick bite and that's one tick bite story and then another tick bite story that I have because I have five minutes so I can keep telling them. So um, the last one was I had left Nantucket and I went up to UMass Amherst where I was going to college and I wasn't feeling very well but they didn't, I was okay but they did my blood work for some reason and it came back that I had ehrlichiosis which was this other tick disease which I had had and then I kind of maybe, you know, it had passed and, and so I got a call from the uh, um, Department of Health and they wanted to know all about my experiences and how I had ehrlichiosis because it was, I was living in Amherst at the time and it was not there. It was, um, and I had to say, I was on Nantucket last summer, this summer, and that's where I must have been bit, that the ticks don't have it here, don't worry, because um, they were worried that it had migrated. So those are my quick stories about blood-sucking insects. So thank you. And our final storyteller for the evening is Betsy Hulick. <laughs> um, this is um, a story about a car. Most of my stories are about cars. Uh, I learned to drive very late in life. I was 40 and um, got my license and it changed my life. Uh, I, I love this phrase, it changed my life because you never know if it changed it for the better or the worse. <laughs> but in my case, it changed it for the better. Uh, I, have a, I live in New York, I have a car in New York and I drive every day and I park on the street. And one day this was, oh, I'd say about 20 years ago. I was driving and uh, the car stopped and I was, you know, what do I do? And a tow truck came along and uh, they towed my car to a garage. Uh, and I got out and I let them, you know, I found out where the garage was. It was an Arab in the tow truck. And I found out later that uh, these, well, the name of the garage was the King David Garage. And I found out that the, the tow truck driver bribed other tow trucks to get their cars to take to the King David garage, which was on 37th Street and 8th Avenue. 
And I called up, and I was going away for the weekend, and it was about two days before I was due to leave, and uh, asked if I could have it back in time, and they said yes. And uh, two days later, it was not ready. So I missed my weekend, and I kept calling, and the car was never ready. So finally, I went down to the King David garage, and there was a man standing there who was waving his arms around and very, very angry, and this was not a good augur. Uh, they had kept his car unnecessarily for something like three or four nights and were charging him for having kept it. So I went into the office and I spoke to, I suppose he was the person who ran it, David, and <laughs> I said, uh, where's my car? And he said, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, we've lost it. And I didn't know what to do. <laughs> so I asked for the name of his lawyer. Uh, <laughs> and I got it. Uh, but before I went to see the lawyer, of course, I called the pound, and the pound did not have my car. So I went down to Wall Street, I walked in, I sat down, and there was a man who was a reasonable-looking man across from me at the desk, and he said, what's wrong? And I said, they've lost my car. And he said, this time they've gone too far. Um, uh, there was nothing to do. I went home, I waited, and then I kept calling the pound and kept calling the pound, and eventually it did show up at the pound. Now, the pound is very expensive in New York. Uh, you have to pay for your ticket, you get, and then you have to pay for the tow charges and so forth. So I went down, got my car, collected it, paid the money, and if you don't have cash at that time, you had to go again and go all the way to the machine, come all the way back, the pound is on a pier, and it's a whole other three hours, plus the two hours you have to wait. And uh, in addition to the car, well, the car, they had put a battery in. Apparently it was just a battery that I had to wait for for three weeks, but the battery was too big, and the, 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 the hood of the car was lifted about three inches to accommodate the oversized battery. And the towing people in New York had also done damage in back. So I had to uh, sue, well, it wasn't a suit, but I, well, I guess it was. Anyhow, you asked, you tried to get money from the city, and I tried to get money from the King David garage. And there's a great system in New York, you can do small claims court. So I took David to small claims court. And that came off about maybe, I don't know, a month or so later. And I asked for $1,000 for damages and other fees. And he came down. And David was a very, very attractive young man. He had soulful brown eyes and beautiful black flowing hair. And he sat next to me uh, while we were waiting for the arbitrator. And he said to me, why you do this to me? And <laughs> I was speechless. <laughs> so the judgment came, and I got my $1,000. And I wondered if the check would bounce, and it didn't. And so that was in the fall. And then spring comes along, and I get a phone call, and it's from the DA. And the DA asks me if I know anything about the King David garage. 
And I say, yes, and why? And he says, well, the owner is up for deportation. Will you testify in court? And I said, oh, I would love to. <laughs> but alas, I'm leaving the country next week, and I won't be able to. This is one of the major regrets of my life. <laughs> And I don't know what the upshot was. I hope he was deported. And it's really sad to think that an Arab and a Jew can only cooperate in crime. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2014 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Caitlin Langstaff, and Vanessa Vardabedian, and was sponsored by WOMR 92.1 in Provincetown and WBUR 89.1 in Brewster. You can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast on iTunes. Join us again in 2015 for more Story Slams on the Outer Cape and your chance to bite it live.